Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 313, and today's guest is John Simon, co-founder and board chair of the Greenlight Fund and managing director of Sigma Prime Ventures. Thanksgiving is not only a special holiday because of the time with your family and all the great food and, of course, football, but it is also a time when lots of people volunteer and give back. Thus, the timing of this interview with John couldn't have been more perfect as we head into the Thanksgiving holiday. Most people know of John as an entrepreneur and investor, as he was the founder of a company that went public and was a co-founder of General Catalyst and has since been with Sigma Prime. But what many people might not know is the philanthropic side of his background. John is the co-founder of the Greenlight Fund, a national nonprofit network matching local communities' unmet needs with evidence-based social innovations. The organization takes a unique approach, which is similar to how a VC firm operates, where each city that it supports raises its own fund and decides on what strategic investments will have the greatest impact. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice for founders on how to incorporate a social mission into their company or a culture of giving back, John's background story and how he started his career in venture capital in the early days of the industry, starting and scaling Euromed Corporation to an IPO, the story of how General Catalyst got started and his experience as a venture capitalist at Sigma Prime Ventures, what led John and his co-founder Margaret Hall down the path of starting the Greenlight Fund, plus how their model works and the impact it has had to various cities, advice for entrepreneurs on how to build a company of lasting value, why he has focused on investing into founders who are uniquely qualified and have world-leading domain experience to solve problems, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that we publish three different emails at VentureFizz? We have a weekly digest email that comes out every Monday. It is a curated email of the must-know information across VentureFizz and the tech industry. We also have a personalized daily job alerts email and a daily insights email, which features the content that is published on VentureFizz each day. Go to VentureFizz.com register to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with John. John, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you, John, because um, you know you're somebody that uh, I've known, although we've never met, uh, just from being in the Boston tech scene for as long as I have. Uh, you have a tremendous track record as a entrepreneur, uh, an investor, but I think there's a side of you that I was really excited to talk to you about. Uh, is this side of you that relates to the the Greenlight Fund? which, um, you know, we're not going to get into the weeds of that just yet, but the charitable side of this uh, organization that you've created and its impact is just astounding. It's it's so impactful. Um, so I thought as a good st- starting point here for our conversation would be to talk about, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, like what, you know, if, if maybe, you know, every, I think people generally want to be good and they'd probably want to work in some level of a social mission into the fabric of their company, but maybe what the company does, it would be feel like it was forced, right? So, but you can do other things to embed it into your culture. So what advice would you have for founders on, you know, creating that, you know, organization of good? Yeah. So, so first of all, let's take, I mean, hopefully this is a bit responsive to what you're asking, but let's, let's take a hypothetical, you know, company that was selling sneakers on the internet, you know, e-commerce or sneakers on the internet. Um, and you know, um, you know, you might say, well, does that have a ton of social purpose or, or, or whatever? But um, the first thing is, you know, the leaders and the founders of the company and the core of the company is is to be authentic. Um, what, you know, what kind of a company do you want to build? What kind of culture do you want to build? What's what's meaningful in terms of impact, in terms of goals, in terms of vision, mission and vision alignment? And then really... You have you, you can't manufacture this something that's not there. But if there's kind of a, a a purpose to try to let's let's try to make the world a much better place with how we're building the company and the revenues we're generating and the value we're generating, like you could decide you want to you want to do pledge one percent and you want to allocate some of your equity to charity. You could decide, you know, we want to. Um, have a certain percentage of our profits benefiting United Way or benefiting our community or benefiting, you know, the food bank because, you know, we're we're really passionate about food insecurity and changing that in communities across America. And you could have, you know, a certain percentage of 
the revenues um, in cities going to food banks in cities. And you create sort of a, a mission that's even even broader and bigger than than the company. Um, and then you're you're going to be more attractive to employees. You're going to be more attractive to partners. Um, and you're while you're doing your core operations of hopefully building a great and valuable company, you know, you're you're putting value back into society. But again, it, it has to be authentic. It has to be something that you really want to do and um, involve, you know, causes or communities that you're passionate about. Um, and you can definitely bake it in, in ways that fit if you want to. And the only thing I would encourage people, think about it, because the earlier you bake it in, the better, the more authentic it is. And of course, the more meaningful it is. Um, so, so think about it really early. Is is that something you want to do? No, you don't have to. But I think if you do, you won't regret it. And the earlier, the better. Yeah, and to your point before of uh, you know, it's it 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 does have an impact as far as hiring culture within the company. Thousand uh, percent agree on that. Well, let, let's rewind the clock. So. Uh, talk about your backgrounds. Like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Kind of getting your career started. Yeah, so I, I grew up in um, Boston. Pretty much, spent you know my whole life there um, until recently. We're now kind of all over the place. Um, and uh, you know, I grew up. My parents were um, you know kind of really passionate, uh, you know, about parenting and trying to raise great kids. Um, myself and my brother um, grew up right near BC, you know, Chestnut Hill, Brookline area. Um, and, um, my dad was a doctor. And, um, so what I saw from that was, you know, first of all, um, he used to carry a pager around with him all the time and he was always available, whether if, if you know, somebody needed to be seen, there was a, you know, an accident or, um, you know, somebody in the neighborhood, you know, showed up in the emergency room, x-rays needed to be read because he was a radiologist, you know, he was, he was there. So I kind of got through him. The magic of medicine, the magic of, magic of healthcare, the magic of caring for others, um, and the magic of being dedicated to a profession. And um, he kind of always wished he did something a little more creative, maybe businessy. So I think he kind of encouraged in me, as as did, did my mom, like, you know, if you have creativity and you're interested in business, you know, that can be that can be a, a lot more creative in some ways than medicine or whatever. You know, just just think about that. So anyway, to make a long story short. Um, I went to high school at Buckingham Brown and Nichols after going to my local public school, you know, then Harvard College, um, studied history of science with sort of a minor in molecular biology, because what I started to get really fascinated with was how does technology get from the lab or from research into society to where it could actually make a difference? Um, and I remember being obsessed as a kid with, you know, the story about Alexander Fleming and, and penicillin, which was discovered by accident in a lab and and then eventually commercialized and saved, you know, tens and tens and tens of millions of lives. But there was actually a lag in commercialization. I don't know, maybe 10 years or whatever. And like, what if it could, what if, what if it had been commercialized earlier? And at any rate, I started to kind of get really interested with all this incredible research. There's all these needs in health, which was really my window into starting to think about creating companies. Um, but there's all this stuff in the labs that isn't going to make its way into society. If it made its way into society in the form of businesses, then we could actually, you know, change human health. So anyway, while I was in college, I worked one summer for a startup biotech company and kind of got the startup bug. Um, was lucky enough to win a scholarship, um, go over to, to Oxford for a couple years. Um, but I knew when I when I came back and finished, you know, from studying and kind of playing tennis as a way of seeing, you know, seeing Europe semi-pro tennis or whatever. I knew when I, time to Kind of settled down. I wanted, I wanted to eventually be involved in helping create healthcare companies. Maybe someday be an entrepreneur myself. But what about venture capital? Maybe, maybe that would be the way to to learn and, and help other people build companies. But then learn, and then maybe I could start my own company. So um, I, uh, when I was between my first and second years uh, at Oxford, I sent out about fifty resumes to venture capital firms. This is this was the very early days of venture capital. We're talking about the yeah. summer of 1985, and 50, and it was impressive. Like I guess because you worked in the biotech, you knew that venture capital was an actual industry. Because exactly. I, I mean, it wasn't yeah. like something that was known. <laughs> like, no, it was. But the 50 firms I applied to was 
I don't know, maybe the industry at the time was like 500 firms. So, uh, <laughs> but, but at any rate, um, I, I only heard back from two of them and, and both of them did offer me a job. One of them was Charles River. I ended up working there over the summer. They offered me a full-time job, ended up working there for a few years. And that, that really was such a learning experience. It was kind of like an on-the-job MBA and then it kind of emboldened me to go you know, start my own company and set me on the current path of being an entrepreneur and then a venture capitalist. And now dividing myself, you know, half venture capital, helping people build companies and the other half um, as the chairman and co-founder of Greenlight, you know, helping create change in 12 soon to be 15 cities, eventually 30 cities across the country, kind of half on for profit, not for profit. But um, but anyway, I, I, I sort of tell people, you know, if I'd only applied to 44 firms, maybe I never would have gotten a job in venture capital. And maybe my whole career wouldn't have happened quite the same way. So, you know, that applying to 50 firms, you know, made, made the difference. Um, being willing to hear no, obviously, you can't be an entrepreneur if you're not willing to hear no. Um, you know, these are the things that sort of set me on my path um, to where I am today. Okay, so from the research I I, I did before this conversation, so you, at 27 years old, you, you know, from Charles River, you went off and created a company that scaled and, and went public. So talk about that. Yeah. So actually, just to go a little more in detail in history. So after my time at Charles River, um, the firm kind of divided in two and uh, did mitosis. So there was guys that stuck with Charles River. And then there was a, a younger cadre of guys that formed Highland Capital. And I actually joined Highland Capital at the founding of Highland Capital to be the loan ah, associate. And okay. that was a terrific experience for me because I saw it was three partners Um Bill Boyce, Paul Mader, and Bob Higgins that were creating a venture firm from scratch. So, yep, they, they were going to help entrepreneurs, but they were entrepreneurs themselves and creating a venture firm from scratch. And as the kind of lowly associate, um, I sort of watched, observed, helped every way that I could, but really saw them lay the fabric to build a firm, you know, which became a really, really great firm. And so, you know, that was really incredible experience for me, incredible learning experience. Um, and and so as we raised our first fund and then built the firm, healthcare was one of the areas we were investing in, and um, we made an investment in a company called Origin Med Systems, uh, which I had kind of sourced or discovered and you know championed, and then ended up being kind of like a board observer at it, and, and and saw entrepreneurs based in Silicon Valley, um, the, the company's Series A backer or seed backer was Mayfield. Highland joined as the you know next and only other backer and then seeing them build the company from just an idea to licensing some technology to building an R&D department to developing the products to then clinical trialing them in animals and then in humans and then bring them to market and then having success and then the company was bought by Lilly their division Garden for multiple multiple hundreds of millions of dollars and the technology was then commercialized broadly through Garden Salesforce and, you know, was used in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of procedures per year, changing outcomes and changing lives. And so I had like a front row seat at that. Um, and having seen it up close and personal, I was like, I think I can I can I could cook a cake kind of like that. Like I could I could follow that recipe. Um, and so at age 27, you know, I kind of had the guts to say, all right, let me, let me leave Highland, go out on my own, see if I can license some technology that could revolutionize outcomes in an area similar to the way this company origin med systems and this entrepreneur Jay Watkins did see if I could do something similar. Um, and it helped that I had seen it done. Um, so anyway, make a long story short, I licensed some technology from Harvard medical school. Uh, we created a whole basket of products that had a chance to um, change outcomes for prostate cancer and other kinds of urological disorders. And we went about starting to build the company. And I assumed that um, I could hire an initial team. We could license the technology. We could start to develop the products. But then once we started to get approvals to sell and market in humans, we were going to build our marketing and sales force. I assumed we we're going to hire a CEO that knew what he or she was doing to really run the company. Uh, because at 27, I knew I could create, but as an operator and manager, I thought I 
I probably wasn't going to be able to do that. Uh, but at any rate, it was. It took us about three or four years to license the technology, do the trials, develop the products, get to the cusp of human approvals. And all of a sudden, an opportunity opened up for the company to go public because of the progress in the company, the, the, the timing in the markets. I was lucky enough. We had built a great team, and, and I learned from that team, and I grew and matured based on them teaching me. Lo and behold, ended up taking it public. Um, we ended up trading most of the time as a public company, about a half a billion dollar market cap. We did make our initial investors about 100 times their money. These days, that would be a small cap. Those days, it was kind of mid-cap. Um, and uh, most importantly, we built a company to be really proud of, made a difference for patient care, and um, uh, and it, uh, ended up running it for, for 10 years before we, we sold the company. And um, so that was obviously, you know, just incredible experience, a lot of luck, good fortune and hard work. Um, and then after selling the company at age 37, it was like, okay, now what? <laughs> what, about, what about giving back? What about giving back and backing the next generation of entrepreneurs who are young and energetic? Not that I was an old washed up dude at 37, but like, okay, how could I use some of that um, knowledge, experience, um, context, relationships, insight, um, scars, to help people build a series of interesting companies in healthcare and in software. And that's that's what I've spent the, the, the rest of my life doing. All right, well, that's a perfect segue. So, so what did you do next? So next I started to make individual sort of angel investments. And um, I ended up cross-investing in a bunch of companies um, with a couple of other guys that I had gone to high school with. Um, and as we started to make cross investments in companies that each of us were sort of shepherding, um, and we had a blast in that and it was successful. Um, and we said, maybe we should formalize this and, and, and create a firm. Um, and we sort of crystallized the idea of a Boston based firm, but a Boston based firm that would be kind of West coast style, sort of swashbuckling. Um, take risks, invest in entrepreneurs, but then roll up your sleeves and really help them, entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs, and kind of imitate some of the best Valley practices, but as a Boston-based you know, firm. And that also we would have the guts to maybe hatch or create companies. Um, and in, in those days, that wasn't really what people were doing anywhere. Um, and, you know, a lot of, Boston venture capital looked and felt a little bit more like bankers. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, an overstatement and not totally accurate, but, you know, could we position ourselves a little bit different, create a firm and which we decided to do called general catalyst. And, you know, the rest is history. It was very successful. Um, our first fund was a $75 million kind of friends and family fund. Um, so humble beginnings, um, go do a great job, raise a larger fund, do a great job, raise a larger fund. And now there's a whole next generation group running General Cows because after you know, 12, 13 years, I became a retired general partner. Um, and have again, since then been splitting my time investing in startup companies and, and building green light. Um, and so um, these, these times, like the time when we were doing investing before we started General Catalyst or the time after I became a retired partner at General Council was thinking about, you know, spending all, you know, half my time on green light and other stuff or whatever. These, these pivot times in somebody's careers, they're really valuable. They're really valuable because they get you start thinking, you know, because when you're so busy building something, you're obviously not, not, not thinking as much, but when you, when you're taking a pause before you do your next thing, a little bit like, what do I want to build and why, and what do I want to accomplish? And, you know, what do I want to do with my limited time on earth? Um, and then what's, what's the next phase of my career going to be? Um, and so, you know, I found those times to be, to be very precious. Yeah. And, and I mean, general Callis has gone on to be one of the premier top shelf VC firms across the country, across the globe. And um, you know, just, I just remember when it was starting out in Boston and, you know, it, it definitely had a different look and feel to it. All right, but um, I want to get into the the weeds of green light. But before that, so so Sigma Prime was the next step. So how did you get involved with Sigma Prime and just some 
some of the info from there. Yeah, so when I became a retired partner at General Catalyst, um, I started to you know, divide my time. Earlier stage companies, again, angel investment mentoring and green light in kind of a balanced way. And I started to cross invest a bit with the guys at Sigma who I had known very well and had co-invested with. And they really wanted to build, um, you know, cause Sigma itself had sort of divided into two. There was a West coast group and East coast group. And they kind of have a vision of like, let's, let's try to build something with Sigma prime that, you know, we can really, build a lot of great companies, which ended up coming true with things like DocuSign, et cetera. Um, and um, so I just, I just said, well, yeah, we've been co-investing, like I'll join to do that. Um, but, you know, I also want to make sure that it's okay with you guys. Like I'm going to dedicate a lot of time to Greenlight too, nights, weekends, um, because I'm going to do everything I can to help you guys who are already doing an amazing job building Sigma Prime. But I want to try to be, really focused and involved in a couple things, including Greenlight, because I could see how successful it was that, you know, hopefully one day this would be, which began just in Boston uh, about 20 years ago, um, that if we did this the right way, hopefully one day it could end up being in 30 to 40 U.S. cities, reaching three to five million children and families a year, actually changing, you know, metrics and outcomes on hundreds of dimensions across these cities and would hopefully become one of the most important poverty fighting organizations in all of the United States. Again, bold claim, bold idea, bold vision for what maybe looked possible in 2012, 2013, but now roll the clock forward to 2023 is really coming true. And um, so the idea of being able to, to both help entrepreneurs, you know, in the, in the for-profit world and, and help Greenlight, you know, that was, I immediately then sort of saw that, and kind of roll the clock to 2012, 2013 as kind of like the next, the next phase of my career. Yeah. And so with Greenlight, um, you brought a unique approach where it's like a venture capital firm. You're raising a fund in each city and allocating those resources to fund different organizations. So, I mean, when I was getting into the weeds of Greenlight, I was like, okay, this makes sense because here's a venture capitalist that's taking what he's learned, just applying it to the nonprofit sector. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, I, I, Greenlight is, which was co-founded, um, again, a, a, almost 20 years ago by myself and Margaret Hall, my co-founder and partner in Greenlight. And from right from the beginning, you know, I'm was kind of the active board chair, but she was the person that was going to run it. So it was a real true partnership of two people creating. So everything I talk about is, you know, the two of us. Um, but it, it is a fusion, it definitely takes a lot of the stuff that I've learned as a venture capitalist and as an entrepreneur, but also as a not-for-profit entrepreneur and a, as a investor or donor in the not-for-profit sector. And all that I've learned from kind of navigating and traveling around to cities across the U.S. and looking at issues and opportunities. And, and it's sort of a fusion of all that. And basically what I saw was that when you, when you looked at cities like Boston, my hometown, all these great people that were doing great work, United Way, the Community Foundation, city government, the school system, state government, et cetera, lots of people doing great work. And yet there were all these metrics um, for low-income children and families or children and families navigating poverty that were really bad. You know, certain zip codes, 10% of kids showing up ready to read in kindergarten year after year after year or kids aging out of foster care, thousands of kids aging out every year in Boston. And within two years, 85% of them, you know, homeless or unemployed or incarcerated contact with the criminal justice system or early unwanted parenting or multiple of the above. Those are just two of maybe, you know, 50 metrics that I could point to that were, you know, really bad and not changing. Another way of looking at this is, you know, the ladder to opportunity for children and families navigating poverty. All of these metrics that were were problematic were missing rungs on that ladder to opportunity. And what I what I knew from my experience in the nonprofit world and also traveling around to other cities from the for-profit world was that a lot of these things that we were struggling with in Boston, there actually were solutions or organizations that worked at scale 
successfully against these issues. They originated in a different city, maybe, and spread to six cities. And we're working, you know, at scale, really changing outcomes with business models, even though they were nonprofits that made them sustainable. But because there's no market system the way there is in the for-profit world, they, they were never they were never going to make their way to Boston. So we had this situation where we had all these rungs on the ladder to opportunity that were missing, or we call these you know barriers to success that were present, right? And there were all these things that would work against these missing rungs or these barriers that were there, but they were never going to get to Boston. And so I started to conceive of a new community utility that would be a little bit venture fund like, but a little bit different. And we would call it the Greenlight Fund because we would raise money, um, let's say enough money that in six years we could do five things. Um, but then we would run a community driven process every year. What does the community want change that isn't changing? And kind of let that be community led, community driven. And then we would then find something that worked, had worked in six other cities, but wasn't our city. We'd bring it to our city, make it our own, help make it happen, help it get all the local partnerships. And hopefully five to seven years down the road, all those metrics about kindergarten reading readiness and those zip codes would change because there was something that changed. And I started to conceive of this, like you said, in a, in a fun dynamic where, you know, every city, we would do this in multiple cities and we would raise a fund to basically make this kind of change every year in every city. And then after six years, we would go back to investors slash donors and say, look at the return on this. Look at the, the, the return on this $6 million we raised to create a green light Atlanta and in six years change five things is that now six years later, there's these five things that are changing. They're changing at scale. They're reaching a hundred thousand children and families a year. They're raising and spending 10 to $15 million a year of state, federal and other resources because we're bringing these things that have those revenue models. Look at all the change we're making with that small fund. Now, Six years later, let's raise another fund, Greenlight, my, you know, Greenlight Atlanta Fund 2, raise another $6 million plus to go do in six years another five, things like that. So as, as we started to you know, conceive of this model, we started to see it being hugely successful in Boston and other cities, and then we went to go execute it. And we were just eight years in Boston only, um, looking at one issue finding something that worked, green lighting it in our city, making it successful. And after eight years, the data and the outcomes were so spectacular that um, we decided, well, now let's prove the next couple of cities. And um, we applied for this social innovation fund grant that had been set up from the Obama White House. And we knew it would be tough to get, but transformative if we did get it. Um, and we couldn't talk to them, we just submitted our data on in eight years in Boston, here's the before data, what we've done, the after data, the impact on the city, the impact on the state, the change in people's lives, the economic impact, et cetera. And we were, we were one of four organizations nationwide out of thousands and thousands and thousands that applied that, that were selected because, you know, we were changed that works that could be then you know, spread across the country. And that was a $5 million over five year grant combined with a couple other million dollars we raised. And so eight years of success in Boston and only Boston. And then with that 7 million, we set up Philadelphia and the Bay Area and we go run those for three or four years. We found those were even more successful. And so that's, that's now what's launched us to where we are now, close to 20 years forward in 12, soon to be 15 cities with all the success across the country and last year receiving a Mackenzie Scott Genius Grant Award, you know. So, um, but but part of the lesson of that was using, you know, all of the learnings to try to create and build something that would make change, that could make change at scale. And then, you know, having the persistence to say, you know, this is a long march. Let's work eight years only in Boston to really prove it and really hone it. And then the next three or four years, only in Boston, two other cities, and really make sure we have it down and building it to last before we then add one city a year. So having, having a notion of what you want to build and why and how important it is and how long it really will take to build something great 
you know, that's important because some things can't be rushed. You know, I, if we if we try to do it too fast at Greenlight, two years in Boston, and then get others that like we would have totally failed. What are, I know there's a lot of organizations that probably deserve an answer for this question, but like what, what are like one or two examples just to kind of, you know, kind of paint the picture? Yeah. So what I guess to give a, 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 um, uh, a recent example of something we've done. So, and kind of the way we Greenlight works. So the seventh city that we set up was Greenlight, Kansas city. And we set up in Greenlight, Kansas city. Um, we raised approximately a $5 million fund to do Kansas city national donors, like my wife and I and Bain Capital and Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and the NFL, whatever, you know, but then lots of local donors um, to help, you know, make that fund happen uh, because no money, no mission. We had to convince folks in Kansas City this was worth doing and it would be a success. So we raise a fund. We hire a local executive director. Um, we build a selection advisory council and then we look issue by issue. This last cycle, and we're, it's always starting with a metric. So this last cycle, our listening tour, all the issues in Kansas City, one thing came tr through like very, very prominently is there's a huge issue with food insecurity in Kansas City. Um, and there's 180,000 families that suffer from food insecurity. Um, and, you know, this was way more than people thought and way deeper a problem than people thought. I mean, people knew it was a problem, knew it was broad, but this is a huge extent. And that it wasn't changing. In fact, maybe it was getting worse. And could Greenlight do something that would make a difference? So we then look and say, all right, what's existing in Kansas City? And then where might there be a gap or something missing that if we brought that in partnership with all the existing stuff that's there, we could really move the needle. So it turns out Kansas City has great food banks, great food distribution centers, School systems are doing a really good job, you know, collecting food, et cetera. But, you know, the, there's the huge problem is that the families that are navigating poverty are not able to access the food. They're not able to actually physically get to the food banks or get to the school system depots at the right time. Um, and also they are um, they're 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 not actually accessing food stamps and benefits and things. That, that could help them. So in other words, there's food that's available that they don't have access to because of transportation, logistical issues. And then there's benefits federal that are available that they're not accessing. In some cases, it may be the difficulty of filling out forms or the fear that, you know, the government is going to come after them or whatever, for some reason or another. So at any rate, as we looked at this and we saw, okay, there's a lot of good stuff, but there's these missing pieces. We started to look and we found we, these two organizations we knew about because they've been successful in multiple other cities. Um, Food Connect, which is basically started by this amazing social entrepreneur as a nonprofit. It's software that matches entities that have food with entities that need it, almost like a Wall Street trade matching software program. But instead of matching somebody that wants to sell 100 shares of Exxon, or somebody who wants to buy 100 shares of Exxon, this matches you know, a food bank that has food with a family that wants that food. And then once match is made, logistically, you know, orders are routed and things are picked up by Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, or trucking companies, depending on the size of the load. And a lot of stuff delivered free, you know, due to companies giving gifts and kinds and stuff like that. So it ends up forming like a last mile delivery capability that totally revolutionizes access to food because all of a sudden families have food delivered that they wouldn't have access to. And as we start to talk to people in Kansas City, like Greenlight Bay Area had done this, brought this to the Bay, hugely successful. It had gotten to other cities, hugely successful. It wasn't in Kansas City. If we brought it into Kansas City, would the food banks connect to it? Would the school systems connect to it? Would families use it? Would agencies? And we basically got this groundswell that everybody was willing to connect to this platform if we brought it. And so we could roll the clock forward and say, you know, five years down the later, down the road, maybe there's 50,000 families that would be getting foods delivered, millions and millions of, if, if we brought Food Connect. But if we didn't bring Food Connect, it wouldn't happen. So then we said, okay, we're going to bring Food Connect. We give Food Connect 600,000 to a million and make it happen, capital, choose them, help them set up Kansas City as their next city. And lo and behold, five years later, 
results change. That's what we do one issue at a time every year. But I haven't told the full story because that cycle, we actually had another organization too that could impact another element, of, which was called, it was, the organization was called Emrelief. And Emrelief was also a technology-based nonprofit that enables families and individuals to apply for food stamps and SNAP benefits on mobile phones in an efficient way and access stuff and not have to deal with the hassle of going somewhere and filling out government forms and all the stuff that, that and, and so the projections were in the next five years, we would help about somewhere between 15 and $20 million of food stamps and SNAP benefits that would make their way to Kansas City families if we brought Emily to Kansas City and we got it broadly adopted, that that, that money would flow and those benefits would flow, but without Emerald like that wouldn't happen. And so we ended up through the generosity of one of our donors, David and Tracy Lockton, they saw what we were doing and they were like, rather than just choosing one thing this year, it's up to you guys and your selection advisory council and your ED of Greenlight Cancer. But if you're to choose two, we'll we'll provide the funding to match. You 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 can you guys can do two this year. Because if you brought Food Connect and M Relief, you could kind of with a one-two punch fitting alongside all the other wonderful work in Kansas City, like you could really make a dent in food insecurity for maybe as much as 100,000 of these 180,000 families. And so anyway, we ended up bringing both these things, which both will have hard metrics, huge success. And that's what I've just given you an example. Like that's what Greenlight does every year in every city. And you, you need somebody focused on this because everybody else, whether it's United Way or the Community Foundation or existing nonprofits, it's all wonderful. It's all important. It's fundamental. It might be more important than what Greenlight does, but they are so busy doing what they're doing that they can't step back and look and say, okay, what's missing, right? And, and the only reason Greenlight can do that is because that's all we do. It, we, everybody else is making happen what they're making happen, thank God. And then Greenlight is looking, and Greenlight Kansas City, driven by the Kansas City community, is looking, what's not happening? What's missing? What is the metric that's not moving in Kansas City that needs to move? And so while everybody else is working on the stuff that's, well, really helpful and also preventing things from getting worse, Greenlight could just make one positive change a year. And the goal is, like in 20 years, we could change 16 things like that in Kansas City, right? And that's, that's what we do in every city. But the key was also thinking about how we build this for last, to last. So you mentioned our fund model. If we think about a, why we do this as a fund model, right, is so if we raise five, six million dollars to do a green like Kansas City, and in six years we deliver five things, like I just described, right, the performance of that fund is going to be so extraordinary that when we come back and report in six years, these are the five changes we've made. This is the difference in food insecurity, these other issues we're making. Hey, over the next six, seven years, do you folks in Kansas City want Greenlight to keep going and every year address another gap or another issue? Because if so, let's re-up and let's raise Greenlight Kansas City Fund 2 at a six or $7 million level and help make it happen. And um, and then, then you know, we could, we could raise hopefully 10 funds, just like Sequoia raised on how many funds or General Castle raised on how many funds. You know, we could raise 10 funds in Kansas City and in 50 years change 40 things because we had a model that would work. And I think we've we've really proven this now. Like our first fund in the Bay Area, Greenlight Bay Area, was three and a half million. Our second fund was four and a half million. Our third fund, which we announced last year, was well in excess of 10 million. So wow. it just, just kind of shows, right, what the performance has been. So how does the uh, executive director and the, the team decide on what to tackle like it's not like kansas city there was a problem that had been outstanding that it was like okay this is a no-brainer that needs to be addressed but in like a like a boston a san francisco more of a, where you've been there for a while how do you decide each year what to tackle yeah so i mean just to give um give an example um this this past year in um in philadelphia um our executive director whose name is felicia Rainier. She has a selection advisory council, 
which is made of about 30 people. That's kind of voice of community. Um, there's business leaders, nonprofit leaders. So last year, um, our executive director, Felicia, together with Selection Advisory Council, every year, there's basically a listening tour, right? This, you know, the same way you would listen to a market as a venture capitalist or whatever. And she's meeting with, you know, the mayor, the head of United Way, the head of the school system, um, other nonprofit leaders, community leaders, pastors, community organizers, um, business leaders, um, school superintendents, school principals, uh, you name it. I mean, it's broad swath of community listening sessions, basically asking people, what's a problem that's not being solved? What's what, what, what needs to change completely in Philadelphia? But then we're asking the question, but what's the metric associated with that? Because if there's no, if there's a vague sense of unease, but there's not a metric, green light can't do anything about it. So at the end of, you know, that three month period every year, but last year is just as an example to the answer to the question you asked me, Felicia had about, you know, let's say 10 metrics that were like really problematic that were people were wanting her to think about addressing. And so she and the Selection Advisory Council basically had to look and say, okay, of all these, what seems like the most urgent, um, the most ripe for change, and where we think there's a will to change? You know, so let's say we're going to do something with the school system to change some outcome, but the school system was undergoing a superintendent change, you know, couldn't actually make a decision. Well, we would... We wouldn't look at that issue that year. We'd look at it the next year, right? So to make a long story short, one of the things she narrowed down to is one of the three contenders for issue areas was outcomes for um, returning citizens. So every year, three or 4,000 uh, folks exit the criminal justice system and return to Philadelphia. Um, and within a couple of years, a huge number of them are, are back in incarceration, right? And there's, it's, perpetuating generational poverty. It's a community safety issue. Um, it's sometimes a civil rights and fairness issue because there's lots of there's lots of things kind of rolled up in it, but it's also a budget busting issue because for the state to have to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on incarceration, they'd rather be spending on education. So huge issue and persistent issue. And um, and what people kept broadcasting was they're, they're kind of returning to society, but they're often returning in debt because they have court fees they have to repay or credit card fees they have to repay. Or, you know, they can get an opportunity for a job, but they need a car, but they can't make a down payment for a car because they don't have credit. So as we started to look into the issues that returning citizens having, and this is a scale issue, and it leads to real problems, lots of problems, reintegrating a society, there was this, like, problem of accessing dollars or accessing credit. And so we started to envision what if conceptualized like, you know, a specialized bank that would provide, you know, credit just to returning citizens so that let's say you had a $2,000 court fee you had to repay before you could lease a car. The 2000 could be loaned to you to dispose of that um, court fee. Now you could live your life, you can go have a great outcome. And of course, then you eventually repay the $2,000, right? So we started to conceive of this. And as we talked about it, it became like, this could, this could reach hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of returning citizens and actually change outcomes for them. Could we find something? So we found this thing called the Fountain Fund um, that was pioneered, I'm, I believe in Virginia, um, and was hugely successful and actually was doing this. And we said, okay, if we, if we selected you, made you happen, gave you plus raise, maybe it was a million dollars to create a pool to make loans from, like, would you set up the fountain fund in Philadelphia? And could we eventually provide loans to hundreds and hundreds of returning citizens a year to totally change outcomes and have maybe this eventually this revolving pool of as much as a couple million dollars that would be providing these loans? And the cool thing is it's obviously would be perpetuating because you know, every year we're helping hundreds and hundreds of returning, returning citizens, but then they're paying back the loans. So they're paying it forward. So eventually, like in 10 years, we could help thousands, right? And um, make a long story short, that's that's why she, Felicia ended up selecting the Fountain Fund and bringing it to Philadelphia. 
and it's early days yet, you know, first six to 12 months of operations, exceeding all metrics, you know, waiting lists of loan applicants. I mean, it's, you know, taking off like a rocket ship in Philadelphia. Um, but again, without green light, that wouldn't happen. So, so, so yes, just packing up to the question you asked, okay, there's all these issues, there's all these solutions. How do you possibly choose? Well, the way we do it is we create this annual process that our ED and selection advisory council in a city follow, which is by the end of three months, you have to have like, what are your three issues? And by the end of six months, you have to have, well, for these three issues, what are the six things I could do? And then by the end of nine months, you have to have two finalists. And then by the end of the year, you got to choose one. And then something that needed needed more work or wasn't quite right, well, maybe that could be chosen the next year or the next year. And remember, I said there were 10 metrics that you know need to be shrunk to three and then ultimately end up being one with this providing credit to returning citizens um, at scale. Well, one of the other things that didn't even make it into the three things that we're looking at, well, that, that could be looked at next year or the next year. Because again, remember the arc is we, we can only do one thing a year and do it really well to really make change. But in 50 years, we want to do 40 things for Philadelphia. So a lot of those issues will eventually get addressed. And think about it, we're either tearing down barriers one at a time, depending upon what analogy you want to use, or if there's a ladder to opportunity, we're you know, kind of filling in rungs one at a time, right? Whichever, whichever analogy you wanted to use, um, yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary as far as the model and... I love how it's focused on one thing done really well per year versus, hey, we could do these 30 things and we've got the capital instead of and just do them like kind of good. Uh, but if you do something really well and then you can scale it to other cities that worked here, we can do it here. I think that, I mean, it just makes a world of sense. So a common takeaway that I'm getting from this of you know your career and things that you have done is you build things that stand the test of time. So what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that, you know, maybe that mindset's not always there that it's like, ah, you know, all these companies are having exits and I got to get to a unicorn. And, you know, like there's that mentality based on largely, largely driven by the media of, you know, scaling a company and trying to sell it or, or whatever, but how do you build something that stands the test of time? Yeah. Okay. So this is, you, you now ask me something I'm obsessed with. Um, and so the first thing, and, and again, there's sort of a contrast with that, with our attention spans today, right. You know, hopping from media to media to media, or, you know, not being able to even read a full, you know, article of a newspaper and getting bored with it, moving on. Right. That's, you know, or, um, when, when we, when I see young people's resume, you know, a year here, a year there, a year there, a year there, you know, like people get bored, move on or whatever. So we, we do sort of have this ADD culture. And um, so one is to sort of be aware of that, right? And do you, do you want to swim along with that tide? Or do you want to step out of that tide? That's just one, like, just put a, like a pin in that one idea or one thought. The second thing is to realize how long it takes to build things that last. So at Sigma, one of the legendary investments at Sigma is DocuSign, um, which some of our partners were involved in. And I believe DocuSign did like six years of internal financings. Uh, and um, actually, I believe it did not go public until after 14 years. And, you know, is really now a brand and a hugely valuable company and a great place for people to work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so, you know, if people were impatient, like, let's see if it works quicker, what, like it never would have happened, right? Um, and so that's just one example I could, I could keep going. Um, I think really great things take a long time to build because you want to build deep roots. You want to build them strongly. Um, you know, whether it's 10 to 20 years to build something really great, um, you know, how long did it take Elon Musk from idea to Tesla, like that we know today, like it's you, you now there's maybe some ADD because at the same time he wants to do all these, do, do all these other things. Right. And, you know, but, um, you know, really great things take a long time to build and a lot of persistence and grit and focus 
And so if you understand that, maybe then one thing for somebody to do is think about like, you know, is there, is there something great that, that I want to build or something great that somebody else is building that I can go help? And if so, know, hey, is this worth 10 to 20 years of my life or whatever? And, and at some point to find something like that. Um, and, um, and if you're lucky enough, you know, to find a bunch of things like that in your life, you know, then, 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 then that's great. And I've, I've kind of been lucky that way, right? You know, being involved with the founding of General Catalyst, um, you know, creating a company that, you know, did great work and then now lives on as, you know, part of a company that acquired it, um, continuing, you know, to help companies being built. And then, and then Greenlight, which is really, you know, I'm, I'm thinking forward, you know, 50 years from now, you know, what, what would Greenlight look like? And, you know, hopefully 50 years from now, you know, we'll be operating in, you know, 50 plus U.S. cities, you know, reaching five to 10 million children and families a year having literally done thousands of things like the things I just described to you, literally thousands of things like food connect or Emerly for Kansas city or the fountain fund for Philadelphia, because after that much time and operating in that much cities and doing one thing a year, right. It's literally going to be thousands of things that will be in a city breaking down thousands of barriers, you know, these cities and aggregates and all these things will be raising and spending you know, total billions and billions of federal and state dollars that will be going to what works and what was needed, but others will work because when Greenlight brings something, we unlock those dollars. And and maybe Greenlight will then be ready to spread internationally or whatever. And so, you know, thinking that way um, gets you to build the right way, build the right team, have the right generational succession, and, you know, also put the right effort in something. Because if you if you think it could be that great, you kind of put a different effort in than just something you're going to hack together and try to sell or whatever. So I, I, I really think um, that, you know, not that everybody all the time should be totally immersed in building something great that's going to last, but it's, I, I think it's probably part of a life that could be fantastic is to find something at some point in your life that's great and help build it. You know, or that somebody else is building and help them build it. Right. Um, and, and, and if you could just think about it in addition to all the other things you think about your life, you know, faith, family, all the other things, just being able to be involved in one or two things. Great. And help those get built where they would be built to last. You know, I, I think our society would be much the better for it long term. So as an investor, how much of your decision was built around a founder with a purpose, meaning I think about, you know, entrepreneurship became um, a thing where it became like a cool, it was, you know, the, you see the movies, the social network, and it became like this, oh, I become an entrepreneur, except it's exceptionally hard. It's a slog. It's not just a simple linear path of rocket ship growth. Um, but you'll see like uh, B-school students sitting around a room, a whiteboard being like, what industry needs to be disrupted? We're going to disrupt. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Right. And it's like, they're just trying to pull these ideas out of thin air of things that are broken right. that I'm going to go fix. How much yeah. of your time was spent figuring out, is this the entrepreneur that is purposely doing this to solve a problem because they know that they're the right one to do it versus, Hey, I had this cool idea. Yeah. I mean, I'm a hundred percent on that like it's you you and and the, the example is you would see somebody that you know i'm 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 building the you know um AI. you know the well yeah yeah you know or, or, or I'm, I'm i'm building the etsy of this or i'm building a facebook of that or i'm building the aol of the you know like it's so right and and i've for the most part totally stayed away from that stuff what you what one thing i really totally value with entrepreneurs is first of all is there like a world leading domain expertise is is this team totally immersed in this problem set in a way that others aren't and and could they be like if there were six other teams thinking about this in six other countries could this team really be the leader because they were so native in it they were so ahead of the curve in it and 
Um, they could see it earlier. They were more passionate about it. Um, they they were more nuanced about it and they understood how if they built it, it would then get distributed and bought and sold and so on. And then did they have the drive? Were they so passionate about it that they had the drive that if it was a race with five other companies, they would win? Um, so that that domain expertise, I'll call it, an obsession with an issue uh, is absolutely for me like a huge criteria for investment. And then a willingness, you know, to dare to be great. Not like, well, but I'm hiring my cousin to do this and that and whatever. Like it's, it's no, but now that I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this the best possible way. And I'm going to attract the best possible people to it. And I'm kind of trying to build something that's going to be like, kind of dominate the industry, not just to dominate, but because that's the way we're going to get the best outcomes for, you know, customers or patients or whatever. And just to give you a little example of that, a relatively recent investment of a company that I've made together with Optum Ventures, which I, I often co-invest with Optum Ventures um, in health-oriented um, companies. And um, and their Optum Ventures is amazing. But anyway, one of the companies that we've co-invested with is a company called Equip. And Equip is doing eating disorder treatment um, in uh, a whole kind of team-based way with instant access to an internet-oriented um, coaching and, and care system um, where you can immediately get access, immediately get a complete treatment team, peer mentors, family mentors, you know, nutritionist, um, therapist, um, social worker, et cetera, and all this team to kind of manage your care and, you know, really get you on a different track um, so that your eating disorder is being treated while you're living your life and totally change outcomes. Oh, and by the way, the results are so successful and they save so much money for insurers that it's all fully insured, you know, fully covered, and it prevents the need for inpatient stays and all that kind of stuff. So, so this, these, this, these two founders, um, one's name was Christina Safran, the other one, uh, and she had been uh, afflicted with an eating disorder as a, as a, as a, as a kid and kind of knew this inside and out, um, you know, graduated Harvard, started a nonprofit to help people get funding for treatment and realized well, we can get funding for treatment, but the treatment is ineffective. Like we need to, we need to create a gold standard, you know, treatment company that's accessible to every, everything. And so she and her co-founder, Aaron Parks, who is kind of head of eating disorder treatment at a major university system in, in, in California, they, they both founded the company together. Like you had, I would say, world's leading domain experts who had world's leading passion about this and world's leading knowledge and obsession you know, how could they build something that the world needed incredibly well? And then how could they do this in such a way that with insurance and accessibility, like it could be, you know, eventually someday maybe accessible to all and actually train, change lives. And it's been like a rocket ship um, and tremendous results. I think best results anywhere from what I'm aware of. And you know, they built a company that's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and is treating, I think, be on path to, to, to treating a couple thousand patients, um, you know, on a continuous basis um, shortly. So it's it's and totally changing outcomes. Right. And this is massive scale set to scale, even more massive. So there were so many things appealing about the company. Um, but as and literally, I met the company when they were thinking about whether to do it as a nonprofit or a for profit incorporated. But that right there encapsulates the answer to the question that you asked, right? Like that's, that's, that's what I think venture capitalists are looking for. Um, that kind of domain expertise, that kind of obsession, that kind of passion and that kind of drive to build something great. That's going to change the world. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to see that in a tourist that thinks, well, you know, here's a good idea, you know? So. All right. So, um, outside of work, what do you like to do? Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a semi-pro tennis player. Do you still, still play? Yeah, that, that was the old days. Uh, so, so yeah, <laughs> I know I, I, I played, you know, in high school and I, I played it lucky enough to play in college at, 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 you know, Harvard college. Um, but you know, pretty low on the team, you know, uh, I was, you know, definitely kind of taxi squad sort of thing. And, and, uh, but you know, way to stay fit, way to challenge yourself. Um, way to have camaraderie, way to have, you know, competition. 
Um, and it did end up being, um, then when I went to grad school, I, I, I played for Oxford on, on, on their team as well, and then played semi-pro and traveled around Europe. Again, that was, you know, maybe making enough money or getting free lodging and food and whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, there, there was no danger that I was going to make a living actually right. playing tennis. I, playing I tennis, could have been yeah. a tennis pro, a teaching pro. Um, yeah. but, uh, but anyway, for me, it was a way to see the world. So now fast forward to, you know, 60 plus years old, you know, I still play, you know, maybe once a week or whatever, you know, old man doubles tennis, you know, with people that used to play in college and we're all kind of aging at the same rate. So we don't notice because we just hit the ball by the other person, kind of like, just like we used to. The ball's going slower, but we're moving slower. So it's like everything's <laughs> slow. Motion. Anyway, uh, so so I do that. I love sports, you know, love golf, love above all, you know, time with with my wife and, and our kids. We have a, a 23 and 25 year old. Um, and, you know, if we can we can spend time together as a family and do stuff, uh, whether it's travel or whatever, um, you know, time with friends, um, you know, Nothing, nothing too, nothing too crazy. Um, but what, what, what is cool these days, especially with Zoom, is wherever I'm doing all that or wherever we are, um, you know, we can, I can be working with companies, um, and I can be working with Greenlight. Um, and you know, since since I've started kind of dividing my time, you know, half on business, half on Greenlight. Um, one of the pretty cool things about that is that's involved a lot of travel. So I mentioned Greenlight is now operating in 12 cities with soon to be 15. So our 12th city that we announced in January of this year was Chicago. Um, our 13th city will announce um, at the end of January, early February officially is, is going to be Denver. We've raised all the money, credible, hired a person there, going to make Denver happen. And then the so what of that hopefully is in, you know, in 20 years, we can change 16 things in Denver, working together with the community, community driven way. Um, the 14th city uh, is going to be Miami. I was just there. The last couple of days, um, putting the finishing touches on a six million dollar fund to create Greenlight Miami, uh, and then now we're working on Dallas as our fifteenth city. I'll be there two weeks from now for a couple of days, uh, and then starting to think about you know of all the cities in the queue, what's going to be city number sixteen. So, so one answer to your question is what's been amazing about Greenlight's success and impact is the starting to travel around the country and create Greenlights in cities. And just how much you get to know cities and all kinds of folks in them from, you know, community organizers to pastors, to activists, to residents, to nonprofit leaders, to business leaders, and to get a cross section of people across the community fired up about Greenlight, helping make it happen and tap into that community spirit of, you know, just Miami as an example, you know, such a diverse and incredible community and to get them all to rally around Greenlight and in 20 years, 16 things going to change. And, we have, you know, three mayors there, you know, the mayor of Miami-Dade County, Mayor Levine Cava, the mayor of the city of Miami, uh, Mayor Suarez, and the mayor of Miami Beach, Mayor Gelber. And they're like very different, different politics, whatever. They're all like totally excited. Like, how can we help Greenlight get here faster, better, deeper, and in 20 years make 16 changes? And what can we do to help? Like, we're all in for anything we can do to help. So engaging with cities that way it's not a hobby it's part of the green but it's it's been an incredible experience to get to know you know 15 cities that way and to think about the next 15 years i'll get to know another 15 that way too you know and so that's that's just been you know incredibly rewarding to know that all the effort we're putting into miami the so what about that is again 20 years from now hopefully 16 things have changed and miami's gonna have this Community Swiss Army Knife, an ED, a selection advisory council, funds haven't been raised to make this one change a year that otherwise wouldn't happen. Like, you know, that's that's really fulfilling. We have a lot of companies, just to kind of bring a full circle to what you said. You know, just about every city, we have companies and CEOs and entrepreneurs that are giving to Greenlight and volunteering for Greenlight or whatever. And we have certainly have some that have baked it in, you know, a certain percentage of our profits every year go to Greenlight because then we know like all the things we're doing not only building a great company but we're creating change for eventually you know what's going to be hopefully a couple hundred thousand children and families a year in atlanta and so that's that's a great thing for atlanta-based companies to be involved in so so back to the question you asked me at the very beginning is you know all this work with Greenlight, you know i'm, I'm hoping that 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 entrepreneurs 
you know, notice it and, and, and take advantage of it, you know, and, 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 and utilize it. Um, and of course, the bigger and better we build, you know, green light, the more things we get to, you know, the more entrepreneurs that could take advantage of that and could, could participate that way with their companies. Great way to bring it all full circle. John, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional history of building companies as an investor. And obviously, like, I just, I was really excited to learn about Greenlight because I, I wasn't aware of the scale and what you've put into it and the impact. So uh, kudos to, to you and the whole team. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for spreading the word. And, uh, you know, congrats on the business that you're building and the community you're building as well. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.